Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to Episode 77, Silence is All Around. This week, we're discussing Season 4, Episode 10 of Buffy, Hush, and the Doctor Who 2010 Christmas Special, A Christmas Carol. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. I'm really excited about this week because we have two really great episodes yeah, to talk about. Absolutely. Um, but we're starting with Buffy this time, and we're starting with Hush. So um, I want to talk just kind of about the fact that Hush is probably, for me, the Buffy equivalent of Blink. It's the episode that I know by title and reputation mm. without having ever watched it before. Sure. Um, like if someone had said to me, name the episode that you, you know, if you could just skip ahead and watch any one episode, you know, without having seen the rest of the show, which would be the one that you're dying to see. Um, and that would definitely have been Hush. So... I'm, after <laughs> quite a while of doing this podcast, I'm excited to actually get to watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, four seasons and, and not even, I mean, it's in the middle of the fourth, yeah. so it's... Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. So, um, and it definitely didn't disappoint. And I feel like it's definitely Good. a precursor to episodes like Blink and others that are that really high concept memorable yeah you know totally like a not i mean i don't mean self-contained in that there isn't important stuff to talk about like obviously right. there's myth stuff there's character stuff it's not like nothing it's not like it doesn't matter in the scheme of things but um but just in terms of like having a self-contained conceit for an episode mm -hmm. um of you know that is just kind of a one-off and is really strong yep. and, you know, kind of sets itself a little task and accomplishes it neatly. Yeah. It just does such a great job. Yeah. Well, um, and, and I think I've mentioned this before, like a lot of people consider season three to sort of be the strongest season of yeah. Buffy, but I feel like some of the strongest episodes happen mm -hmm. after season three. And yeah. this is absolutely right in there and consistently makes it into top 10, even top five lists of, yeah. you know, the best yeah. episodes of the entire series. So, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. And and I I like your point about it sets a goal and accomplishes it because that's yeah. absolutely what Joss Whedon did here. Um, and, of course, we should bring up written and directed by Joss. Um I think I, I may have mentioned, I can't remember if I said this on our podcast last time or if it was uh, something I just said to you, but it was not um, like it, like I, I remember saying that it doesn't sort of have the typical mythological stuff that Joss likes to play with when he writes sure. and directs an episode. But then I think I actually texted you afterward and said, you know, I kind of forgot about some of the myth arc stuff <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, that yeah. does happen because they're actually yeah. it, and more on a character yeah. maybe level than a mythical level. But sure, there's there right. is right because the, the the as awesome as they are, the gentlemen are more one off. Yeah, 
monsters, but like definitely with Buffy and Riley and introduction of, you know, Tara and stuff. It's definitely setting. Uh, and even up Xander and Anya, you know, have sort of yeah. a, a relationship. And there's definitely I want when we get to Spike, I want to talk about his sort of new relationship with the group because I think right. dynamics there have changed a bit. Right, too. that has changed a bit. So, yeah. so I think in a lot of ways, this is very much a uh, sort of pivotal episode, not just yeah. because of its production value and. Um, you know, reception and all of that, which obviously it, you know, that's all included, but like also yeah. for a lot of character and sort of longer story stuff that, that starts, you know, to change here. So, yeah. um, so I take back all of what I said about that. If I said it <laughs> yeah, either in private or on record, um, I rescind it completely. <laughs> I do also want to talk about sort of the reception because, um, I don't think you're alone. And sort of being, you know, someone who has not seen Buffy probably does know of a couple, you know, handful of episodes. And I would be mm-hmm. very surprised, you know, if most people didn't at least hear of this uh, sort yeah. of casually um, for a number of reasons. One, uh, because it's well received and because it gets a lot of praise. Uh, it was nominated for two Emmy Awards. Um mm-hmm. There's actually only one other episode of Buffy that's nominated for more than one Emmy. Um, and that one comes later. It's in season six. So we've got a while. Mm-hmm. I won't tell you which one that is. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, the, the two awards uh, that it was nominated for is Outstanding Cinematography for a Single Camera mm-hmm. Series, uh, which I think, you know, we can discuss maybe a little. But um, mm-hmm. also Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. And and I think that's important because until now, uh, the only uh, award nominations that Buffy had gotten were for those sort of technical categories. Right. Um, it had gotten awards for like best hairstyle, best makeup, you know, that right. kind of stuff. This is the first time where it's actually recognized for the writing. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, the only time <laughs> that it's recognized sort of for the writing, at least as far as Emmys go. Um, yeah. You know, we you can sort of spout chagrin at that. Sure. Admittedly, there's a lot of other really good uh, shows out there with snappy dialogue. This actually lost to uh, another writer who is and director and producer who is known for his witty dialogue, and that is Aaron Sorkin for yeah. uh, The West yeah. Wing, uh, which which won that writing award. So you know, it's it's I'm sure. Well, maybe Joss would would not agree but i you know it's hard to say that like i like the west wing too and i think they have great dialogue so you know it's hard to say that you know one should have won over the other maybe but it it at least at least it's in that company you know where where it's starting to get recognized and i think too that um you have to consider the context too of the time not just in the competition being stiff but also you know, Buffy and Joss were really the leader of the pack in terms of this type of genre show being sort of accepted in the mainstream and respected. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's because of Joss and Buffy and the other shows that he did that we can now have Doctor Who being like showered with 
you know, awards and praise, you know, and I don't mean that to say that Doctor Who doesn't deserve it, you know, or that one show deserved it more than the other, but just like, you know, in the late 90s, the standard was very different for what, you know, was kind of accepted as mainstream high art, I guess, like the kind of thing that like gets nominated mm. at the Emmys or the Golden Globes or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, a genre show like kind of silly, campy vampires and teenagers and on the WB and all that stuff, you know, that's not the kind of stuff that certainly in the late 90s would have been, like, yeah. reading in the awards categories. Right. And it's kind of awesome that it got nominated at all, I think. Yeah. Um, um, and it's because, like, Joss broke all those preconceptions that now that stuff is less of a hindrance. So if you have something that's really good, you know, that's kind of similar, like Doctor Who, it's not as big of a deal for it to be... Yeah you know, appreciated in, by the Academy or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I, I agree. And, um, and Jane Espenson agrees with you. She, as she put it, hush redefined what an episode of television could do. And, yeah, and it's because yeah. of shows like this and episodes within shows like this one yeah. that it could be, um, you know, could lead the way for those sorts of things. So I think that's absolutely right. Um, and it, in addition to the Emmy Awards, it also was nominated for a Writers Guild of America nomination. Um, I tried looking up what what specifically the award was for that, but I couldn't find it. So um, mm. we'll just have to trust the news article that I read uh, <laughs> and and hope that it uh, is accurate. Um, couple. So uh, one random. Well, one random tidbit and then uh, a little bit more on production. Um, the random tidbit is that uh, so in that first dream sequence, the classroom sequence. Um, yeah. Joss actually sort of packed the hall even fuller than usual. Um, uh -huh. be, I, you know, partly because it's a dream sequence. So, you know, it's not just like you're having to get up in front of the class and do these weird random things, but it's like yeah. an even bigger class than normal and, you know, right, like that kind right. of thing. So um, I think that's just one, you know, one of those little attentions to detail uh, yeah. that, that he gives um, in that group. He actually points out in the commentary um, is an actor, Andy Hallett, who um, later, I, I guess at this time maybe was even, filming for angel uh but we don't see his character until later so just sort of a little random thing that there there's an actor actually appears in buffy who later comes into angel that um isn't well known i don't think he's credited mm -hmm. or anything here but just kind of funny um basically he was just pulling in whoever he could get that like was on set or in you know the offices that day kind of thing right right um to sit in there um the other, so more talking about the actual production of the episode, um, Joss wanted, he, he specifically set himself, and this is, this goes to your comment before, he specifically set himself the goal of using this episode to make him become a better director. Um, mm -hmm. He had gotten the comments about, you know, he had good snappy dialogue and, you know, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And he felt like, that as a writer and director, he was starting to rely on that too much. He, you know, mm -hmm. he, he could get the dialogue down, but um, as he sort of explains in the commentary, he, he, you know, he said, 
you know, it's pretty easy. You get a shot of one character talking and then you get a shot of another character talking and then you get a shot of both of them talking and then you go back to the first character and get them. To, he's like, you know, yeah. it, uh, he called it radio with pictures. Like, it, it you know, mm. you're not you're not focusing on the visual. You're not focusing on the action or the acting. Yeah. Um, and And it's, you know, all about the exposition and the dialogue. And he said... He he used this episode as, you know, something that would help get him in a different uh, sort of point as a director. Um, yeah. And so we get out of the 44 minutes of the episode, <laughs> only 17 that actually contain dialogue, which when you yeah. when you break it down, that's more than two thirds of the episode in which nobody is speaking. Um, yeah. Now they mouth some stuff and whatever, you know, there's some sure. stuff written down, but, but even that you have to, it's not, it, it's still a different talent. It's still a different, yeah. uh, both from the directing and the acting perspectives uh, and cinematography and all that. Um, but you get scenes like um, where you get like Riley and Forrest coming down, you know, when they first, when, when everyone first realizes that they can't speak and you get this yeah. like huge overhead shot of like the frat house, you know, when yeah, they're coming the, down, the camera kind of follows them down the um, stairs and everything. And that's, yeah. that's a classic Joss long follow through scene, you know, right. like, you, right. like you get the beginning of serenity, which, which yeah. I mean, the serenity one is longer and more complex certainly, but it's, sure. it's, you see sort of the beginnings of some of that stuff that gets played out in other yeah. uh, series and, and movies and stuff. So, um, and, and even just talking and, and he's, you know, you know, he mentions that like, just even the amount of lighting and the way that you have to do certain things, like, just wasn't done on television, especially at the time, you know, we're talking sure. 15, whatever years ago, uh, yeah. 15, 16 years ago, you know, it just wasn't done at the time where you would have this huge complex set that you have to light for a shot that basically takes them from a bedroom to an elevator. That's right. the only purpose of that shot is to do that. Right. Um, and there's no dialogue. So you're not even getting exposition along the way. You're getting some looks and some you know significant glances and you know some minor things like that but it's really not something that that they did a lot of um another one he talks about is like with the kid in the bed when he's you know you, you have the point of view shot of the the gentleman coming in to collect his heart mm. um yeah and very minor but there's a ceiling on the room in television, right. you don't have ceilings on sets because you're always filming down or straight ahead. Yep. So things like that, where he said we had to build a ceiling because there wasn't one. So right. that kind of thing. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like if when you take away, um, you know, if something can be used like as a crutch, like dialogue or something. So like, you know, Whedon is so good at the snappy dialogue that, you know, and I don't get me wrong, there's nothing, you know, we love the snappy weed and dialogue. That's one of the reasons that we love what he does. But you can, if you, if that does become, I don't want to say like a crutch, but like you can rely on Buffy to have entertaining dialogue, mm -hmm. like from on, a, on any given scene. So it is kind of like when you take that out of the equation, not that there's not still story being told and there's obviously still humor like mm -hmm. 
clearly this is a hilarious episode, you know. Um, but when you take kind of that thing that you're used to, which is keeping up with, like most of your energy probably goes into keeping up with the dialogue yeah. and like catching all the jokes that the characters are making and how quickly they talk. Um, it kind of does force you, I guess, the viewer, to pay attention to what else is going on in the scene. And then that means that Whedon has to raise his game, you know, because, like, you can't get distracted by, like, or you you don't want to get bored by, you know, boring shots. Yeah. Or distracted <clears throat> by, you know, you know, incomplete sets or whatever. It means, like, if he wants to do something interesting visually, he has to kind of, you know like design a more complicated shot or design a more interesting bit of set or whatever, yeah. you know, or make sure that the lighting is good or, yeah. um, you know, or come up with something visually that's interesting in the scene rather than just relying on the characters to be charming. So, um, I think, yeah, there's a huge amount. I can definitely see now that you mentioned the cinematography, I can definitely see, him doing stuff like that like and and definitely like with the scenes of the gentlemen like mm -hmm. following them <clears throat> down the street and their eeriness and uh the way that they move in yeah. the scene and the yeah. way that they're lit and the way that they oh <laughs> see now i've i had seen uh i don't quite want to talk about the gentleman at this moment but i can't help saying this but i had seen pictures of the gentleman mm -hmm. but i never seen any clips of the episode. Oh, okay. So I had no idea that they floated. Mm. So that was like, I was expecting them <clears throat> to look like they looked, but I wasn't expecting that, like, awful way that they just sort of glide yeah. down the street. Yeah. So that was pretty great. Definitely want to talk more about that, but let's talk about the other stuff first, because... Let's talk about talking. So, let's talk about I mean, talking. <laughs> well, because that's, it's such a clever, you know, what a great idea that in the episode where, okay, he says, I'm not just going to make it all about talking. This is my excuse to do an episode which has visual, you know, mm -hmm. like a visual punch to it. Of course, what does he go and do and make the whole episode about talking and communication? You know, that by taking away the ability to speak, that means that that becomes like the driving force of the episode yep. and like definitely it struck me that as like and even on the first viewing i think because i kind of knew the conceit of what was coming i knew at some point they weren't going to be able to talk so i was kind of waiting for that to happen and so it did strike me that literally every single scene has to do with talking or not talking or communication of some kind yeah you know yeah, it poor starts communication. With, yeah 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 so i mean it starts with walsh's you know lecture obviously about you know communication and inspiration and ideas that aren't quite the same thing as what it is you're trying to communicate that if you have a thought you know how do you express that and um you know some thoughts we don't have words for and so uh she calls for a demonstration so i guess actions speak louder than words or something yeah um and so in the commentary joss puts it um 
you know, that it's that it's really the idea that when you stop talking, you start communicating that that mm-hmm. it's a, that actually language and talking uh, because of its rules and constrictions can actually interfere with that communication. Yeah. Um, and so you get all of these uh, really between all of the characters, you know, each of the characters have their own little thing. So you get Buffy and Riley who don't they're quite kind of talking around each other. Buffy, you know, every time I talk, I have to lie. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, they can't tell each other the truth or, you know, you know. Willow with um, the Wicca group. Oh, it's all talk, 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 but they don't actually do anything, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and Tara keeps kind of wanting to chip in and chime in and support Willow and get sort of, you know, you can kind of see what the group thinks of her opinion. So yeah. She just sort of, yeah you know, lamely sort of lapses into silence again. I know. Isn't that a terrible moment when like the leader or whatever of the group, like specifically calls Tara out, like, okay, everybody listen to Tara now. Like, yeah, we know she's not going to say anything good. So let's all it like, it's, you know, by actually giving her the platform, she's making it even worse in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, then, uh, Xander and Anya, you know, they're, they're, communication problems and Xander not quite knowing how to express, you know, thinking that of course I like you because we have lots of sex. Doesn't that prove that I like you? And Anya not being sure about that. And, and, you know, Xander's joking sort of being another point of contention where he shouldn't maybe be joking in these moments. Um, Yeah. She wants, she she wants uh, (coughs) some words about how, you know, how he feels. She wants him to express that in language, you know, like, what do I mean to you? How much do I mean to you? You know, and, and he's just kind of, well, I don't know. We'll talk about it later. Um, Right. His deflecting. Yeah. Um, So yeah, no, it definitely is, is this idea. And even when, even when Olivia turns up with Giles, doesn't he say like, Oh, you know, talk later, you know, they just sort of get right to, get yeah. right to business no, uh, and kind of don't even really have a conversation you're right she she's the one who says that's enough small talk don't you think she says that yeah. right right yeah so it's right so there's even this idea that like i mean they're getting to the action quicker but it's at the expense of having a real conversation mm-hmm. um because yeah before that went oh it's you know oh there was baseball on the plane you know so it Right. It was stupid American stuff that, you know, right. whatever. Like, I mean, it was it was small talk. It was meaningless, so to speak. And, you know, it was just. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. so like, yeah, each of them have their communication problems um, so that when they do find out that they can't talk, they have to come up with more creative and more sincere, you know, things that are. Yeah. I mean, not that there's no ambiguities, because there are, and they're funny when there are ambiguities, sort of like with Buffy's staking motion and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Like, there's... That was hilarious. Um, that was my favorite scene, I have to admit. The whole... Yeah, I want to talk Giles about... presentation. I want to yeah, talk so. about that scene specifically. Uh, but I, I, you know, I mean, there are little moments like that where there are... But so then they have to... They're sort of forced to be more thoughtful, to get across their ideas in the exact yeah. ways that they mean it. Um, and succinctly, like it, not, yeah. you know, not in long sort of drawn out trying to explain 
things. Um, yeah, they have to be sort of economical with their. Yeah. What is it that they're trying to say? You know. I just realized that this whole this takes a whole meta connotation when you know we realize this is a podcast that we're listening to that is only talk. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. um, we won't get too far down that road. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so anyway, I mean, there's, there is this idea of communication and that this is something that language can interfere with and that we, we do sometimes just need to break away and be more genuine in thinking of how we're communicating to people. Uh, but it's also interesting too, that like, I mean, not, there's a positive (laughs) aspect of that, of like, you know, learning to communicate more effectively and without kind of all the BS, I guess, but, um, also how depressed the town gets when their voices are lost. Like that was kind of interesting how like instantly everybody is like, you know, I mean, at least the Scoobies have something to work on. So I guess that keeps their spirits up, but everyone else is just like sitting around and, freaked out falling apart you know the students don't really have anything to do that the all the shops are closed uh you know there's except the liquor store fights except the liquor store (laughs) uh yeah the bank's closed but the liquor store is open you know there's like fights and accidents in the street and you know all sorts of things so that was kind of interesting I like the, you know, the religious service where everyone's just reading their own Bibles. Like, they're, you know, you can't even listen to the preacher. Not like, like a sermon or anything, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> um, yeah. So, um, kind of a, the, the flip side, I guess, of, like, the loss of the language can force you to, um, you know, find other more effective ways of communicating. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's always a pleasant or empowering experience it can be very frustrating you know and uh certainly it seems to be difficult for pretty much everybody so (laughs) Yep. yep well let's talk about the gentleman the gentleman the gentleman uh yeah oh they're great um they are they're great. So, I mean, what don't I like about them? I like everything. So they look fantastic. Yeah. I love the gliding, like I said, the the way they, especially that part with Olivia, when he's gliding across <laughs> oh, the street, yeah. and then the one goes right up by that. That's like a fantastic. Yeah, it kind of turns towards her. Yeah, yeah, with the the big fixed smiles, and I also really I wasn't expecting the the very sort of campy mannerisms that they have of how mm. they sort of clap for each other and yeah, congratulate. Yeah. They're this like really smarmy kind of like oh, they're just having a great time. Like yeah. I've never seen villains enjoy their villainy quite as much as these. Yeah, guys. no, I I love that's one of my favorite scenes too is when they're he's like showing them that he got a new heart and they clap yeah. for him and then and he sort he's of bows like oh shucks you know and kind of yeah, like yes yeah. yes yes looking all, trying to look all modest yeah. but like yeah modest um, but proud um, yeah so again and I can't help with the blink comparisons but it does that really great job of balancing the scares and the humor. Yeah. You know, like, and I think Moffat and Whedon have a lot in common that way of they're at their best, I think when they're doing that and mixing those two. And 
you know, the scarier and the funnier it can be, the better. Yeah. Well, um, and I think just in general, as as a sort of uh, comparison with Doctor Who, um, not even just with Blink, but but overall, mm-hmm. there's a very um, like we didn't even says, you know, this is he was trying to scare little children with these monsters yeah. like, the, you know, yeah. and, and um, you know, so to sort of the conception for him is actually at least partly from monsters that he was scared by as a children. Um, and he told, you know, that like he had a, he had a drawing that he actually, I think produced um, mm. based on uh, some stuff, uh, you know, that he, again, from when he was a little child, things that scared him, but also like you said, he wanted it very Nosferatu esque, you know, very yeah. Victorian kind of in there uh mannerism and and dress but you know and also to have like like with their metal teeth that it's sort of like mm. you know it it's like science but science gone too far right so we have dentistry yeah. but now we all just have these metal teeth kind <laughs> right. of that have taken over and and um uh so the other thing yeah like with the mannerisms he actually cast a number of professional mimes to be the gentlemen so these nice. were yeah, like the you know their training like helped them with their movement and yeah. and and like you said, right. kind like of a lot of kind times, of campy, a lot of times, but... a lot of times the the you can tell the monsters are like the stunt people, you know, who yeah. are really great at the action and the fighting, but they're not necessarily not sometimes they are, but they're not necessarily the best actors right. necessarily, right. you know. Whereas these guys, you can really tell. They know a lot about movement and movement and expression yeah. and yeah. doing so in an environment where you're not talking, you know, where you yeah. have the only uh, way you can get your ideas across is through that movement and expression. So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, was a good move there, I think. So um, and, and, that, and you said this. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was just saying another sort of phrase that he uses is politeness in suits. Uh, with you <laughs> yeah. know with like a creepy yeah. feel because that that is you know it is sort of that yeah the well-dressed monster you know kind of yeah. thing so yeah. yeah and the and the more polite they are yeah. the more kind of eerily threatening they are yeah too. and 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 let's not forget the old angle that th- there's something inherently scary to a child about yeah people who are old you know just yes. old age in itself as an idea um so you know, I think all of that sort of combines to this, if not perfect, nearly perfect, you know, sort of mm. rendition of of a monster um, in the eyes well, of a and child. You, and, and there's also that kind of inscrutability of it, of you never find out what they are or what they want, what... what who are they? What's yeah. their goal? We have no idea. We can't talk to them. No. Um, There's they that... don't go on any, like, big, long, you know, master or Davrosius rants about, you know, what they're going to do. Or, like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. They're, again, very much like the Weeping Angels that way. It's like, if they have an agenda, we don't know it. Just to go along and collect these hearts. And, and so I like that kind of just... Uh, the blankness of that, I guess. Of they're just there, and, and they're just bad, and you just need to escape them, you know. And right, no, and and there just is kind of visceral. There is a very, very much that fairy tale quality to yeah. it, right? We don't 
we don't know why you know things happen in a fairy tale always it's just this thing happens you know we don't know why so and so needs to cut out someone's heart it just that's because that's the way it happens in this world and so now here we are with the gentlemen they need some hearts that's what they're after they're killing people yeah. we need to stop them like we don't know why screaming makes their heads explode it just does that's the explanation we have um clearly it's the right one because it's what happens but we don't yeah. understand why it is or where that came from or why they came to Sunnydale of all places, you know? Yeah. Well, and it is that, that that's kind of what makes it specifically fairy tale is those logical associations that don't have a connection in the world that we know, but inside the story they do like there's a particular, I think it's GK Chesterton in one of his essays talking about is it ethics of Elfland. I think when he's talking about fairy tales and like giving examples of those sorts of associations like um like he uses like the garden of eden like you know you uh you eat an apple and you lose your innocence you know or you know he talks about like cupid and psyche like she lights a lamp and love flies away like we don't know why it is it's just inside the story there's always the the taboo or the trigger or the thing you either shouldn't do or the thing you need to do mm -hmm. and you know or like maybe like you know c.s lewis you ring the bell and then the world ends or something like there's always those sorts of random acts have some sort of bigger symbolic consequences or whatever sure um so that's kind of what it reminded me of in this is like you know you need to uh you know like to scream and their heads explode or, or open the box and you can get your voice back. And it doesn't have to make any sort of real world sense, but in yeah. the story, those actions are associated with each other. Right. Right. Um, you know, and then of course, like the, the fact that, you know, she's identified as sort of the princess in the story that there's, you know, this kind of chosen special, you know, special in the sense of, chosen but ordinary person who can kind of do the thing which you know right saves the day and everything right um so i did really enjoy seeing that aspect of it too and the way it was like the music like the music that he gave them you know as they're sort of in the clock tower and floating mm -hmm. down the street is all very you know kind of childlike and ethereal and everything and, and yeah the, the smoke and the lighting and everything kind of contributes to that idea yeah no i'm glad you brought up the music because there's definitely i mean you just have to pay more attention to it uh in yeah. an episode yeah. where you don't have dialogue um yeah. and we get uh so christoph beck is uh the composer and he pretty mm -hmm. much so starting from like mid-season two uh, where we get like the Buffy and Angel theme song, yeah. you know, which plays itself out through that season um, and into season three a little bit. Uh, he's he's the same composer here. And so you get these. Um, yeah, really well thought out uh, soundtracks and stuff um, that go along with the motion. And it it is more sort of cinematic in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you also get actually so bringing up the Buffy and Angel theme, you get a new Buffy and Riley theme uh, when Ooh. when they kiss, um, which is oh, you know what? And I didn't notice that that was like a theme, but I did notice that scene because that felt like a silent movie to me, the way that they were like talking to each other but you couldn't hear what they're saying and then mm. like the music swells as they kiss and everything and i kept expecting it to cut away to like little subtitle vignettes. telling you what, yeah, yeah. what they're saying like it just felt like the whole thing was kind of structured that way um yeah so uh there is i mean i was actually gonna say like it, it's hard to notice that as a theme because what I this is the first time we're sort of hearing it. If the first time we're hearing, and I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't think, I personally don't think that it's as notable uh, from a or noticeable anyway uh -huh. as as like a theme, you know, uh -huh. trope. Um, but maybe we can see if we continue to hear that throughout the season, like we did with the Buffy and Angel theme. Um, yeah. But I will say that Joss really picks up on it in the commentary. So, like, nah. we should at least make note of it. Uh, make note of it, yeah. Because he, he actually says he likes it better than the Angel and Buffy love theme. Uh, hmm. Because it, he, he says it is more complex and it is, it, he says it's more adult than, mm -hmm. uh, than that. You know, the other one's just about sort of visceral passion and this and that. And, and that this one seems to be... Uh, he at least says, uh, you know, again, have that little more adult quality to it. So, okay. um, you know, definitely worth noting the music. Uh, and so your mention of silent film actually brings up, I think, for me, the scene in in the lecture hall there when Giles has yeah. a transparency. Like, that's definitely what I think of as being yeah. sort of closest, even to the point where he brings his own soundtrack into, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, sort of the narration yeah, his kind of own dramatic little um, score to go along and it. you get like as if that's all not enough you get the hint of anya eating popcorn watching uh, the movie. you know so she's the yep. one watching and and sort of you know not having the the real world reactions that the others are having um yeah i like i love when like you know, it's, you know, what do they want? And then he's got his pictures of like them stabbing people and taking out their hearts. And yeah. I just just kind of like nods like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like huh, that seems yeah. like what they would want. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. We're good. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm just, following she's, you. She's so, she's so cool all the time, you know, not yeah. really fake. And also, you know, with, yeah, with her own sort of demon background, like, yeah, of course. Right, that's right. That's why these people would be in town. Like, why else would they be in town? Of course, they want something. Right, right. Hearts. Um, seems perfectly yeah. reasonable. Right. <laughs> no, that scene. That was my. Much as I love the gentleman, that scene was definitely my favorite. Um, just the. Yeah, I mean everything from the the little cheesy boombox music to his you know, gestures kind of underlying the lecture that he's giving. Yeah. Like every time he, he, he makes a good point, he sort of points in the air like, aha, see the point I just made, you know, and, uh, but then accompanied by like stick figure drawings and yeah, um, everyone's, you know, all their hilarious uh, off color, you know, reactions, whether it's like Buffy's gesture that they, misinterpret or 
Xander, you know, misinterpreting Willow, you know, when she yeah. kind of, you know. So, yeah, it was a great scene. Yeah, yeah. And I would go so far as to say, so we talked about, like, Hush being, you know, one of the favorite episodes of a lot of people. Like, that scene is probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. Like, I just, yeah. it's, it's just, I mean, one, it's just so well written, so well crafted. Um, yeah. And, you know, with all the little bits of humor and it's exposition, but, you know, like doesn't quite feel like exposition. You know what I mean? Because it's funny sure. and and yeah. not just dialogue and all of that. So um, that's the best way to do exp- exposition is yeah. to make it entertaining. Yeah. You know, the sugar so you can swallow the, the medicine. Right. Um, so on that note, um maybe should talk about a few of the characters specifically um, that we haven't sort of covered at this point. Sure. Um, Well, let's start with Buffy um, and Riley too, because we kind of talked about how in the beginning when they can still talk before they lose their voices, it's all about how they're not talking, you know, that like you quoted that every Thing she says to him has to be a lie and of course everything he's saying to her is a lie too um you know and you get that with them like neither one wants to say what their plans are for the evening and yeah. everything and they have to in her petroleum patrolling uh slip up and everything um but so we finally um uh there might be other things we can talk about too but i guess the most important thing is that from like an ongoing mythic character point of view, we finally get the big reveal of them seeing each other. Yeah. Um, and of course they can't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So you get this like pointing the crossbows at each other. Yeah. It's very like neither of John them Woo speak. moment, right? Like yeah. this very, you know, in the midst of action and they're boom. Oh, yeah. they're little, little Mexican standoff. Yeah. And, um, and of course they can't talk about it, so they have to just go on fighting. Um yeah. and are a pretty good team, actually, it seems. Um Yeah, they I both sort of it. instinctually know uh yeah. one that, that the other can take care of themselves, but also yeah. when to step in you and help. You know what I mean? And so help it, each other, it's not yeah. like it's not like one or the other is they're not getting in each other's way. They both sort of have a sensibility you know, where, where they can do their own thing, but also are keeping an eye on each other for when the other one needs help. So, um, yeah, yeah, there does seem to be sort of a good little partnership and instinctive partnership there. Uh, so yeah. And I like his, uh, I I love when she figures it out and motions for, and she has to kind of slap the thing to get his attention. Um, and motions for him to destroy the box. And of course he destroys like one of the jars or something. Yeah. And, and his little proud smile, like, like I did it. I do good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and her kind of like exasperated eye roll. Like, right, right. you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just no, those little hilarious. touches that, you know, that kind of reminds you that that's why the episode is so good. Cause not only is it a great concept, but he's milking it for everything that it's worth. You know, so all those tiny little touches, which only are, you can only do it because of the episode and the way yeah. it's done and everything. Yeah. Um, that was really great. Um, 
And then, of course, the final yeah. scene, you know, okay, I guess I guess we have to talk. And neither has any idea, you know. I presume they're sitting there thinking, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, where do I begin? Where do I begin, you know. And so they just sort of sit and stare at each other and the silence stretches on that, you know, they actually were communicating a lot better in a way when they were just fighting together and put the explanations aside and just, you know, were there for each other and were active. And now that they actually have to explain it, it's much more difficult to sort of wrap their minds yeah. around. Yeah. And, and the fact that now they can't hide behind language. They can't lie. They can't. Yeah. Oh, I, it was a slip of the tongue. I meant petroleum when I said petroleum, yeah, yeah. you know, that kind of thing like it or, you know, Riley's stock answer is grading papers until suddenly you realize, wait, there are no more papers to grade. So what are you really right, doing? Right, right, right. I'm grading late papers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so it, like at this point, none of those excuses work because now the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. And 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 yeah, no, that is great because it's we have to talk and silence. There is no yeah. um, actually. And Joss mentions in the commentary. Uh, I keep mentioning this commentary. I don't usually mention commentary. One, because there isn't always commentary, but also, like, this is just such a good one to have commentary on. Um, yeah. He actually, <laughs> Ironically enough. <laughs> he actually dislikes... Uh, yeah, right. Uh, he actually dislikes the, the very last shot of the two of them sitting across from each other. He, he thinks he mm-hmm. should have ended it on one of their faces, thinking that they are about to talk. So he's... He actually mm. would have preferred, but I, I don't know. I kind of like the way it ends with them both yeah. sitting across from each other, not talking. Um, Cause I think I like it too, because I could kind of sense the end of the episode coming. Like the longer it stretched on, I started to go, Oh, this is it. He, th- he's going to just end it, you know, cut to credits. Um, yeah. I guess you could have done something cool where like one of them opens their mouth to speak and you sort of then cut away and like, you know, surprise and like that, but I do kind of like it. I kind of like it too. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll see where it picks up, you know, in the next episode or whatever. But I think, I think it's, it's interesting because you do get the sense that even though they sort of don't have the option to lie or miscommunicate on purpose Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, they both are sort of really wishing they did. And so there yeah. is a sense. Yeah, it's definitely an uncomfortable silence. Yep. And so there, so there is that sense then that what did anybody learn this episode? Right. In a way, kind of nothing because we do want to go back. And it's only by the fact that we, we can't, you know, that we're kind of forced to acknowledge these realities that, uh, we have to communicate better. We don't actually want to communicate better. We yeah. are just simply forced to at this point. So right. um, anyway, I I do like that aspect. Yeah, um, I do too. Yeah, there's some other funny stuff with Riley. Like I, I love when they're in the elevator and yeah, Riley and Forrest. Yeah, the whole voice recognition um, thing is great. No, and it did kind of dawn on me as they were going into the elevator. I was going, oh, no. Yeah. Because <laughs> I remembered that from before. Mm-hmm. Um, the right. voice Right, right. It's know, something you don't think about until you suddenly need it. Yeah, um, yeah. 
and I like the little gag of use the stairway in the emergency. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and Forrest, you know, can't say come on, come on, so he writes it down, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like that kind of thing. So I I like those moments. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's. I think I think yeah, that's obviously the main thing. Um, the other thing is it's their first kiss on screen. Um, that's it. I believe so. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Because in the, and and it's it's poignant because in the beginning they're about to kiss and it's their mutual lies that keep them from kissing. It's right. You know, Buffy realizing there aren't any papers to grade that she right. pulls well, away. Well, and they kiss in the dream at the beginning, but that's they kiss in the dream, dream, but it's a dream, right? So it's right. it's doesn't really count. Um, I don't know why that hadn't occurred to me but now that you mentioned it yeah. you're right yeah no and and that's when the love theme kicks in so it's uh, it's sort of that uh yeah all of that sort of coming another together. another fairy tale logic scene if i kiss you the sun will go down like right why because we're in a fairy tale who knows yeah, why it's yeah. just the way it is you know yeah um and the nursery rhyme obviously which is always yeah. great to have a nice creepy child nursery rhyme. <laughs> right. Um but moving on. So um Willow and and we'll talk about Tara sort of with her. Yeah. Uh you know, her stuff with the so now we've heard her talk about Wicca group. Now we actually get to see Wicca group. Yeah. Uh and it's so disappointing. It is disappointing. <laughs> hilariously disappointing though i like how they're just like every the most mundane kind of club of you know i, I like all their terminology for things like the um the empowering lemon the, cakes or whatever like yeah yeah I, I make an empowering lemon bun or whatever yeah whatever it who is. left who left their scented candles all over my woman power shrine <laughs> um, <laughs> or the the Gaian newsletter and everything yeah it, yeah, uh, like they're well-meaningly useless, you know. They're, yeah, yeah. Um, talking about stuff, but then like, it's also that condescension of we know what we're doing, and when Willow brings up actual magic spells and whatever, you know, they sort of, you know, okay, you're all about empowerment, but how empowering is it to talk down on someone who? you know, brings up this radical idea that Wiccans might be into magic. You know what I mean? Like, right. right. Uh, you know, they, they really lambaste her and, and it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could yeah. all get on our broomsticks and ride on our broomsticks. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, you know, for, for a group that wants to empower people, they seem very willing to, Cut well, Willow and, and down for right a, away. and for a group that wants to self-identify as Wiccan, they're pretty looked down on, you know, anything associated with like witchcraft and you know, like that isn't, I guess, group approved. You know, yeah. Um, but it does draw the attention of Tara, who, as mm. you mentioned before, tries to sort of give her support um, before backing off. But then when stuff goes down tara goes looking for willow when the chips are down she's got a little bit more going on than pretty much anybody else in the group yeah um yeah and uh you mentioned this before we started and i definitely agreed that it was 
really interesting to see Tara and how she is very similar to how Willow was when we met her. Yeah. And it was kind of a shock to see and realize how much Willow's evolved in the last couple of years. Like, in some ways, she's still the same old Willow and, you know, is very much the same. Yeah. Um, but that kind of, she's lost that wallflowerish, you know, kind of doormatish quality that she had early right. on, you know, of even, even just like Tara's body language of the way her long hair sort of hangs in her face and she keeps her head down, you know, like yeah. well, the way quite she look you she, in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. She kind of holds herself in a very kind of mousy you know, subservient way and everything. Whereas now the way Alison Hannigan sort of carries herself as Willow is very confident, you know, yeah. and kind of, you know, still struggles with, you know, the same, I think. She's not totally free of all of her, uh, you know, confidence issues, but mostly she pretty much knows herself and has an opinion and isn't afraid to speak it. Yeah. Um, well, and and even you get that last scene. Um, I mean, with the two of them, anyway. That uh, you know where Willow goes. I'm definitely nothing special. And Terry says, "No, you are." And we're kind of like along with Terry, like, "Yeah, you actually are." Like, and yeah. not that we didn't think she wasn't from the beginning, but I think you're right. It is it is a moment of contrast where we're meant to see Willow really has sort of grown in her. Uh, assertiveness and and just her power and that kind of stuff um mm. and and it takes that sort of outside voice and outside uh perspective to bring that sort of to bear uh you know where we realize it at this point yeah um, and interesting that from what tara says it's funny how much she looks up to Willow and her, I, I did wonder too, I think it's true what she says to Willow about, you know, you know, you are special and you have power. And obviously that's true, but you wonder how much she's putting Willow on a little bit of a pedestal there, because mm. it's kind of interesting that Tara, if we believe what she says, you know, in some ways should know what she's doing more than willow because she says her mother practiced magic so she's grown up around it yeah and was always exposed to it and she even says she's been practicing pretty much forever you know i guess trying yeah. to emulate her mother a little bit so maybe she hasn't maybe it's a difference of having had not had the experience that willow's had in you know fighting monsters and practicing spells and things like it's that might be the difference, but I don't know. I wonder, like, is does she have an accurate idea of exactly how much control Willow has over her power? I'm not yeah. entirely sure. Well, and that's a good point, because cause you're right. We definitely get the idea that Tara has been living with some sort of power for a while. And we don't know the extent yeah. to that. I mean, yeah, you know, her mother may have dabbled, but then again, you know, so did Amy's mother, right? So, right, right. You know, we don't know what that means. We don't know yeah. what that means exactly. Um, the, I guess, sort of the thing about Tara is the most confident thing that she says is, mm. "No, you are." Meaning, mm. you know, saying to Willow that she is special. So, I think if we're to sort of take that at face value, that 
she does recognize something powerful in Willow. Like there is a sense in, in that there's still that part of Willow that doesn't recognize her own power. So right. like, you know, Tara having been around it, maybe we can right. sort of say, Oh, well there's, there's even more to sort of be drawn out from Willow. And right. You know, even if Tara is sort of mousy and whatever, like, at least in that moment where they're sort of alone. I mean, I know they're like in a public area, but they're, you know, they're they're kind of alone just talking together. Um, Because of her sort of earnestness in that earnestness in that moment, we can sort of, I think, look at uh, what Tara is saying there as being being an accurate portrayal that that she knows what she's talking about and that she recognizes mm-hmm. in Willow something that is powerful and special. And yeah. so where that gets drawn out, mm. you know, remains to be seen. And just the fact that she spent so much time looking for her and put herself in danger looking for her and realizing that there was something that they could do together. Um, and even if it winds up being just moving a soda machine together, right, like right. once, you know, Willow is sort of barely able to move it, you know, she shakes right. it a little, but once Tara joins hands with her, like they have no problem very forcefully moving it against the door. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't want to say too much suggestively about future episodes or whatever, but there is sort of a symbiotic or not symbiotic but uh synergistic relationship yeah. there i think that it's we're sort of led to believe that like tara may be more powerful than she looks and mm-hmm. willow may be more powerful than she looks and it takes kind of each other to draw it out in a yeah. way um i think that might be a hint that we could glean from what we've seen already mm-hmm. yeah and definitely like you know, part of that too is kind of um, the, and that's kind of the only reason I've necessarily, because I think she is very earnest in that moment when she says that to Willow. But there is also that sense of, uh, you know, definitely what I picked up on is that 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 is kind of Tara being drawn to Willow in some way, and definitely being very admiring of her. You know, she seems to really. For, you know, whatever reason, she seems to, like, definitely look up to her a lot. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so then the, the, the question then is kind of, okay, is it is it connecting with Willow's power in that moment? Is that Tara's power in that moment? Or is it the combination of the two, you know? Um, right. So, well, I guess we'll see more. I know Tara is a name that I know. Um, so I look forward to seeing more of her in future episodes. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. Okay. Who next? Uh, Xander and Anya? Yeah, let's talk about them a little bit. Um, and I, I mean, <laughs> we may have already sort of gotten most of what yeah, we say it, about them. Yeah, I mean, theirs is a little... I, I, it's great, but it's a little bit more sort of lightweight of of his his inability to express his feelings is overcome. Yeah, to 
His actions speak very loudly when he pummels Spike for what he thinks is killing Anya, which is hilarious. Sure, typical sort of man behavior. You can't put into words, but if it's no. action. And I mean... No, and that proves everything that she wanted him to be saying to her, which is that he cares, you know. And, That's all she really wants to know. And that is sort of, right, that is sort of the quintessential Xander too, right? It's the visceral, He if, yeah. if he's the body, then yeah, it's, yeah. it's the you know, punching Spike in the face, yeah. that is his way of saying it's he gonna loves He's going to say her. way more than a speech ever would. Um, but I do want to point out that... And then her little, like, suggestive, okay, well, let's go, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, especially from starting the episode, complaining about that's all that he cares about. You right. know, we sort of come full circle. Right. I, I want to point out, though, that um, there is, you know, so we talked about when we sort of first saw Anya that... We don't, and, and like she and Xander first started sort of hooking up or whatever, like it would be very easy to sort of place, uh, you know, place too much emphasis on Anya being a replacement for Cordy. But I think there's, Mm -hmm. if we're looking at Xander as the body, there's a sort of, um, it is that sort of visceral aspect that makes Xander and Anya sort of good for each other too because Mm. it almost I mean they're always you know the first sort of thing she does is throw herself at him in a very physical way and we see her very frequently talking about food and eating like you know even thinking of just in pangs where you know it's a ritual sacrifice with pie and how much she loves pie and she's eating pie and carrying pie you know so it's like, there are all these little things that I think, yeah. you know... Well, that's true, because as much as she wants to talk here and wants to hear him explain how much she means to him and everything, you do get the sense that the 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 physical is very important to Anya. Sure. Like, it's not, it's not because she doesn't like the physical that she feels... It's like, the problem isn't that she doesn't want to do the kind of things he wants to do. It's just she also wants to know how he feels, you know, but, you know, whether it's food or sex or whatever, like those things are important to her, too. So that yeah. you're right. That does make them sort of she can keep up with him physically, you know? <laughs> yeah. And 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 that she likes it. Like, it's not just that she's keeping up with him because that's what he likes. It's she, but genuinely... she genuinely connects with him on that level, right. too. Yeah. Right. Um. And also that she sort of reduces other people's relationships to that as well. So when Giles yeah. talks about having a friend come over, what does she say? Oh, she oh, goes, oh, is this an friend, orgasm yeah. friend? So yeah. it's like, well, yes, I mean, in a way, but we'd like to think that it's more than that, you know, so maybe not. Right, but right. Um, there is that level on which she's thinking as well. So I, I think... Hmm. Anyway, I would just say there's a sort of compatibility there that... Yeah. And not that, you know, I mean, Corey and Xander obviously were physical as well. I mean, they start with the whole making out stuff, but I right. it does feel different to me, at least. Yeah, so. yeah now that you point that out, you're right. Um, I can see how she's definitely a good match for him that way. Yeah. Um, Giles and his orgasm friend... Olivia mm-hmm. uh, that so I don't know how much to say about them um, 
Yeah, I mean, that was kind of surprise. Like, I had speculated before when she was there, and it was kind of unclear exactly what their relationship is. We yeah. get that clarified a bit, you know, that, or at least confirmed something that we had speculated about. Yeah. It seemed, it had suggested something that this episode confirms, you know, so. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know what to say about it other than that, but. Yeah. Uh, so the last, the last piece that they're talking about is you know apparently at some point along the way we don't know if she has been there since that first time we saw her i mean it's possible that she's been around several times you know or whatever um we just don't know we don't know where she lives or whatever clearly not in sunnydale because she flew there yeah uh but we get that conversation at the end of her sort of saying so okay all that all that stuff you told me that was true Mm. Uh, except for, you know. Except for Pink Floyd. Yeah. Uh, and he asks her, too scary, and she says, I don't know. And that's kind mm. of where we leave it. So any any thoughts on that sort of where we leave it, or or you just want to see well, it just what that, happens? Just that Giles has the same uh, problem that they all have, which is the difficulty of finding a normal relationship doing what they do. Um, you know, like he had Jenny and that was great because she was this neo-pagan who was into the same kind of weird crap that he was into, you know, and they could, he had a lot in common and knew everything and he wouldn't have to, you know, lie to her or protect her from whatever. Um, and so now that that, now that he's lost her, the difficulty of finding somebody else to connect with, you know? Sure. So he kind of feels this duty to stay with Buffy, but that means that he might not have an easy time having a relationship with somebody like Olivia who has to think about, is this something I want to be getting into? Right. Um, And how difficult would it be for him to find someone and be able to explain that to them? So that was kind of, it left me with that was was like Giles has some of the same struggles that Mm. Buffy has. Yeah. Um, and whether what she, what decision she'll make, I don't have a real strong prediction one way or the other, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, I guess I would also just point out that she isn't, she doesn't really jump into helping out either. That's true. That's true. Uh, that, I mean, she's, we sort of see her sitting there on the couch at the one point, you know, when, when, uh, you know, like they're watching the newscast and stuff and people are coming in and then we see her again at the end. <laughs> like, yeah, there's, I guess the only thing she sees the gentleman and she draws a picture so that Giles can look at them. But yeah, yeah. But I mean, and but I she think doesn't that's like before... volunteer to like do any research or fighting that we see or right, anything. Right, right, right. So yeah, so less of the less of the adventurous type that maybe Jenny was. She's certainly not jumping right into things. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Okay. Um, And we should say one or two things about Spike at the end, too, before we (laughs) move on. Um, Yeah. uh, Quite surprising to see him walking around like he owns the place. Um, And he kind of does. And and he kind of does. He's very demanding. He gets all his, his snacks that he likes and his blood is cooling in the fridge and he gets the couch and the TV and 
Yeah. Um, he's king of the mountain. We've he's got a pretty sweet deal. We've moved away from, uh, you know, the whole uh, being chained up in the bathtub, right? And almost being like almost tortured to. He's kind of just one of them now, in a way, like bizarrely, yeah. like yeah. Even though he's still presumably, I mean, he's still a vampire. And he's still presumably right. dangerous, but there there definitely seems to be a different tone <laughs> yeah, uh, to their relationship with him. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, don't have a lot to say there. Um, we don't really see him after Xander pummels him a bit. Uh, no. But also, like, we know that he can't exactly strike back. So he's just sort yeah. of left to his own devices and figuring out how to deal with that fact. Um, yeah. I like when he flips off Xander. Yeah. That's very funny. When Xander sort of accuses him of doing something and he just sort of, you know, he, flips him off. He gives the, the English version of the bird. Of the finger. And yeah. uh, a little surprising. Another, that... another way of communicating with great economy. <laughs> yeah. And... You know exactly what he means. And a little surprising that that got past the censors. That and... I was just going to say, we don't even have to censor it. <laughs> yeah, that and, and the sort of gesture that Anya makes. That Anya makes is very rude as well. Um, so. Yeah. No, that's funny. Maybe because what he does is sort of a British thing instead yeah. of the American version. He, they got away with it. Yeah. Um. Which makes it even funnier, I think. Hard, but, hard to say. But I don't anyway. know. So lots of lots of good good stuff, um, and lots of fodder for you know pushing into the second half of the season. Yeah, uh, for sure. So we'll see where that takes us, uh, but of course we're not going to talk about that one right away because we're going to be yeah. talking about Angel next. I mean, sure. we're talking about Doctor Who right now, but Angel next right. week. Um, anyway. Okay, so Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, Christmas Carol. So, like, I, well, I think you, before we get into any of the Christmassy stuff mm-hmm. with this, uh, you wanted to talk about some production notes and, and that kind of stuff yep. a little bit? Uh, yep, just have a couple of things which I think are good to note. Um <laughs> This is uh, an obvious point, but worth mentioning that it's Moffat's first Christmas special. So, you know, we're getting to take a thing which Davies sort of invented and let Moffat kind of put his own spin on it. Um, definitely um, a popular episode, you know, both as a Christmas special and just overall. Um, it also had a Hugo nomination, um, but I already mentioned that the Pandorica and the Big Bang won it that year. Um, yeah. So, uh, but it's well received anyway. Um, and Matt Smith had a Constellation Award nomination, and it won a BAFTA Award for Best Sound as well. Um, so a couple little nods there. Um, yeah. A few uh, Moffat-y uh, writing things, which I think are interesting quotes. Uh, Moffat called it Doctor Who meets Dickens meets Jaws, um, which makes <laughs> me smile. And it's sort of like... Again, we're starting to see Moffat getting bolder with his stories and the things he's willing to kind of do. Like we talked about with how complicated like the Big Bang got, you know, Mm, like just in terms of its structure and just 
throwing as much crazy things as at the screen as you can. Mm -hmm. So here it's sort of again doing that like what other show or episode would do something which is, you know, futuristic and steampunky but also brings in Dickens and Christmas and also, you know, flying fish and opera music and all this like, you know, it's almost like let's pull as many random things out of the hat and make a story out of them. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think he definitely pulls it off in this episode. Um, yep. And we talked about, um, you know, we've talked about with Moffat before how a lot of his scary ideas are things that either he was afraid of as a kid or his kids have been afraid of, and he kind of takes those childhood fears and makes stories out of them. Sure. Um, and we talked about that with Joss, um, with his, yeah. with the gentleman and everything. Yeah. And uh, here we have another one of those, although this might be the the strangest childhood fear that I've come across. Moffat said that he used to have nightmares that sharks would evolve so that they could come out of the ocean and chase him on land, you know, like <laughs> invade his bedroom at night. So yeah. here we go. We get like the shark chasing you into your bedroom. Um, he might be the only person to actually suffer from that particular phobia, but <laughs> hey, it works. Right. Um, and I yeah, it's not a to, not a common one to my knowledge. But. Not so much, um, but uh, but I like it. Um, and uh, the other thing is that Arthur Darville, who plays Rory, gets promoted to the main credits now mm. with Matt Smith and Karen Gillan. Um, so it kind of lets us know that we'll be seeing him on a. We saw a lot of him in the last season, but now he's sort of a full time companion regular. Regular, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is um, that partially this story is actually, if not quite an adaptation, at least sort of an expansion or a adaptation or inspired by a short story that Moffat wrote um, called Continuity Errors, which was actually his first professional bit of Doctor Who writing. Um, mm. it, so it was a short story in a collection called Decalogue 3 Consequences, which came out in 1996. Um, and, uh, it doesn't have much to do with the Christmas or Dickens aspects of the story, but, um, it has a lot to do with this idea of the doctor going back along somebody's personal timeline mm -hmm. and rewriting it, um, you know, specifically going back to change their history and for the goal of making them a nicer person. Um, yeah. You know, in the in the short story, it has to do with him needing to check out a, a restricted library book that will help him in some alien invasion or other. Mm. Um, and the the librarian's been sort of conditioned uh, against the doctor. You know, it kind of flashes back to her going to this lecture as a student, and it's all about um, how you know morally ambiguous the doctor is. Like, the lecturer starts talking about D Doctor Who, nice guy or utter bastard. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and the idea that, you know, everyone thinks of him as a hero, but is that because he tells them that he's a hero and he manipulates them into thinking that he's a hero? And how far would he go to, you know, achieve whatever his goals are? So you're seeing her get that lecture, and then you're also seeing the Doctor try to persuade her to give him this book and sh her refusing, and then he starts going back and tinkering with her timeline and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I like that it introduces that idea, <clears throat> and specifically that it kind of introduces the actual moral ambiguity of that idea, that what's the doctor's 
right to, I mean, it gets into that question because we see him go outside of his TARDIS every episode and change history in one way or another, you know, sure. and we think of it as for saving people for good purposes. But when, when you actually have him, you know, consciously rewriting someone's history, it does introduce the idea that there are ethical implications to yeah. that, yeah. Um, you know, which Kazran brings up in this episode. And we can talk about whether or not he has a valid argument or, or whether that librarian has a valid argument as well. So um, you, you read the story too. I sent it to you and I'll link to it in the show notes. So if you had any other thoughts about it, feel free, but I at least wanted to bring it up since Moffat kind of is plagiarizing himself again. <laughs> yeah, no, I think one of the interesting things um, to me about that story um, and realizing, and I think it applies to this Christmas Carol story too. So um, is that you get this idea of the doctor not quite knowing exactly what it is that will achieve the result that he wants. And so he's just sort of going back and changing one thing at a time to see, right. you know, which, which thing is it that's going to finally, and, and you never really, you never really know. Is it, is it, did he, is it that he finally finds the one thing mm-hmm. or is it the amalgamation of the accumulation you know, of things? Right? Yeah. All the different things that he changes. So like in continuity errors, you know, he goes back and makes it so that her husband doesn't leave her and makes it, you know, that doesn't work. So then he makes it so that the daughter doesn't die. Uh, mm-hmm. And then that doesn't still work. Like, even though her whole personality has changed from someone who's like sour and, yeah, you know, uh, uh, sort of the dour librarian, you know, to to a fairly happy person. She's still like, no, I'm not going to give it to you because I know you're manipulating me. And mm-hmm. so, you know, eventually it's going back to uh, the lecture and, and actually changing the lecture itself where she first <laughs> gets implanted with the idea that she shouldn't uh, give out the, the book to the doctor. So, you know, but like, Say that's where he had started. Say he had started at the lecture. Would that be enough in and of itself? You right. know, or because these other things happen, you know, would she still be a sour person because her husband left her and her daughter died? And and that may or may not be the case. We just don't know. So I I, right. I like that you get this, you know, tinkering aspect of the mm-hmm. doctor, you know, or personality or, or whatever. Um where you get the sense that as much as he likes to sort of present that he knows what to do, he doesn't yeah. really always know what to do. So he's sure. just kind of trying stuff and and eventually he gets to a point where he gets the result he wants. And at that point he stops. And so, of course, it is completely self-serving in one respect, um, even if incidentally by the end she's a happier person and, you know, her husband and daughter are still around and they're presumably happy too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, like, is there a moral, like just because they're happier, does that make it okay for him to have gone back and messed with their lives? If, if, especially considering that the only reason he was ever doing that was not to make her happier, but in fact to get what he wanted. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I also, 
was intrigued by so and this is purely a continuity errors thing mm-hmm. um i was intrigued by the companion in that story yeah. i felt that she had a very river song-esque quality mm. to her with the writing in the diary and not quite right wanting the doctor to know exactly what's going on and what she's doing and you know i could almost see that being like a proto river song or early you know thought and who knows maybe he had a specific companion in mind i don't know yeah i believe that it's um i believe that it's benny who was uh never in the show but she was i think paul cornell created her for the spin-off novels during the hiatus so she wasn't based on the performance of one of the actors but was a recurring companion so gotcha. like during the hiatus, she was like one of the prime primary companions, but I, that's yeah, not. To, but that's not to say that Moffat wasn't already thinking in the direction of having a, a River Song esque. Um, and I yeah. think she might have been some sort of archaeologist herself. So maybe she does kind of have certain things in common with River that way. Yeah, could be. So uh, you know, and I don't want to. Clearly, it's many years before River Song appears sure. in, yeah. you know, 20, 20 or more, right? So, um, or no, 10 or more, at least. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, so I don't want to suggest that this is River Song or anything, but I, right, right, I right. did get with the diaries and with the, and, and also with yep. not having read literally the only two, uh, Doctor Who stories that I've read are the two Moffat stories that we've talked about in right. our podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I don't want to, you know, make too broad of a statement or anything. I just, I got that uh, sort of feeling when I... No, I think Moffat is uh, very uh, open about that kind of self-plagiarism of reusing his own sure. ideas. Um and plagiarizing other people, he uses other people's ideas too, but like you see certain things like recurring in mm-hmm. his, and or like where like uh, certain ideas become like the precursor to things that get expanded on later on. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably right that he was, you know, that those short stories are the case of him starting to play with things that he then gets to expand on when he takes over the show later on. Sure. sure. Um, So to bring that back around to the show, then to this episode anyway, um, I think you can see the same thing. You know, he's going back uh, in Kazrin's timeline there and changing things, you know, first it's just, changing who his babysitter happens to be and you know you know like little things like that see if he can sort of influence him at that sort of impressionistic age or whatever but then it's you know it it sort of grows and develops and he he continues trying new things and it's not just you know influencing him uh you know uh like in these one or two moments, but then it becomes sort of these epic moments and they all are tied to Christmas. And yeah. of course we get the moment where, <laughs> you know, you get the invocation of a Christmas carol. So, mm, yeah. you know, you get Amy, what is that? A Christmas carol. What? A Christmas carol. What? A Christmas carol. You know, it's yeah. like this, you know, saying three times the thing that you want yeah. to manifest and 
and of course that on the third time the doctor's like oh wait so yeah. it's you know it becomes a very explicit that he's you know doing the ghosts of christmas past and yeah you know present and future and and whatever so um but yeah again you get this sense of he's not exactly sure what it is that that he needs to change in Kazran and I like that yeah we get through um all the stuff with Kazran and and Abigail to you know find out that she only has one more day to live and mm-hmm. that that's what turns Kazran mean so like yeah uh unlike the story of continuity errors mm-hmm. where you know the the changes successively make the librarian nicer and whatever with Kazran it's it actually ends up having the same result right he still yeah, becomes yeah. a bitter old man despite the doctor's sort of interference um yeah. so yeah and in some ways kind of because of it too that he kind of you know feels yeah that kind of for a while at least until he goes the other direction again he kind of is of this kind of um not better to have loved and lost better to have never you yeah. know never met her at all and like he even says like i wouldn't have even met her if the doctor hadn't changed my life to suit himself so for a little while in the story he actively blaming the doctor for yeah. the way his life is going um yeah yeah, so I I do like that, like that you get this idea of the doctor's like, well, I'll I'll change him, but it the reasons change, but the attitude yeah. and the the um, personality end up not not changing completely. Although I guess even that we can sort of take with a grain of salt because then you go back to the isomorphic, you know. Right. Controls or whatever. And apparently he did change enough that those yeah. don't work anymore. So it's, you know, so. And even like when he's bitter later on for different reasons, like now because of the kind of grief of Abigail and everything, instead of just even that, even though the result is the same, that he's like a bitter lonely person you kind of feel like at least it's some improvement in the sense that well at least he does have someone he cares about you know which is is more positive than his original kind of isolated misanthropic you know point of view you know you feel like maybe he's a little bit more receptive to the change because he has had positive relationships with the doctor and with abigail yeah Um, yeah so even even though his answer doesn't change of i'm still not gonna help the you know the the ship to land there are four slightly different reasons too and it's not necessarily because he doesn't care anymore as much as he says he doesn't so yeah so which defies his own statement of you know you tell the doctor that uh, well amy says time can be rewritten and he says you tell the doctor tell him from me people can't Mm -hmm. you know what but you know he is sort of. Um, right. Is it? But hmm. And I guess that's the question: Is it really? Is it that they're you know rewriting him, or is it just like redirecting? You know what I mean? Like, did anything about him fundamentally change? Right. Um, 
Which I guess right. is sort of the question in these kind of stories. Like, does he actually change or is it just because the doctor changed the circumstances around him, he's reacting to different things, but right. maybe he always would have reacted in that same way had those situations arisen. Um, and that's right. sort like of... Like, if he'd, if he'd been able to have a relationship with someone like Abigail or with Abigail on his own without the doctor's interference, right. maybe he would have grown up to be a more... Uh, you know, a kinder person to begin with. Yeah. Or know? even, or even had, you know, I mean, the picking of Abigail was somewhat random. So like right. what, you know, if they had right, picked right. someone who uh, didn't have only one day left or a few days left right. when they first pick her, but you know, a few days left to live, would that have changed? Because then he would have continued seeing her over those years. Right. Uh, and, and never have felt the need to kind of shun and, shut her away, uh, you know, and become a bitter old man in that respect. Right. Um, hard, hard to say. So, yeah. So again, you get the sense of it's not, the doctor doesn't really quite know what it is that's going to change him. He just mm -hmm. keeps trying stuff. Mm -hmm. until, I like, until I love this. Well, and, and he is trying, well, and I like that kind of reminder that, um, he, you know, the doc Matt Smith walks a very fine line in this episode between feeling like he genuinely is uh, cares about Kazran and wants to see him happy um, and enjoys all the Christmases. But at the same time, you do you're never really allowed to forget that he has like an agenda. Right. Um, so, you know, like even the bits with like, when the shark is in the bedroom, you know, you can kind of see him like wanting to help Kazran by showing him the shark. Like, yeah. oh, you didn't get to see the shark and that's why you're upset. So we're going to show you a shark, you know, and maybe that'll right. give him this fulfilling experience. But also when the shark gets in the bedroom, then him kind of saying like, well, you know, I think I know how the fog works, which is going to help me save a lot of people in the future. So as much as he does care about Kazran and wants to make him be a happier kid, he also is trying to figure out how to save that spaceship. And he's never, that's always ticking away in the back of his mind is how, how yeah. does the fog work? How can I resolve the situation? Yeah. Um, so, so I like too that like, there's that balance between the two. Like he wants to spend all this time with Kazran and is, seems to be having a good time with him and with Abigail, but also like, he's not really expecting when, uh, the boy Kazran says to Abigail, like he promises to come back every Christmas Eve. He be like, he swears it. And the doctor's like, wait, what? No. <laughs> and then you skip forward and you realize like, he's like, Oh my God, I have to do this. Like, you know, and then they go and they have their day and then he says, all right, I'll see you in five minutes. So right. like, there is this sense that it, this is like a, I, and I don't mean to say that he doesn't also enjoy it and want to do the, the, the good things, but there's also the sense that this is what he has to do to achieve the goal. Right. Um, right. And if, and if, you know, having, you know, 10 or whatever Christmas Eve's in the space of, you know, a couple hours is what it takes. Like he's going to do it. Um, so I like that kind of tension between the two. Um, 
It's interesting. I always like ambiguous doctor, so. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I do like that too. Like you don't get, <clears throat> definitely when he, yeah, when, when young Kazran is like, oh, you know, he's going to come back every Christmas Eve. And, and we had already, you know, heard from the family, right, that, that she loves Christmas Eve. So this is, this is like, oh, perfect, you know. Yeah. Yay, come back every Christmas Eve. Um, yeah, so, no, I you definitely get that sense of chagrin, like, uh, this task is going to be a lot longer than I sort of yeah, budgeted yeah. my time for. Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, he thought it was maybe just going to go back and... and Yeah, like, maybe give, him, give, give him, him a, a good cool experience to, with or, the shark, yeah. you know, yeah. he'll, like, that'll change the course of his life. And then it's like, oh, okay. No, this is going to require more, um, a little bit more legwork. A little more hands-on. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we kind of skipped over our original outline here. Um, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about, like, the Christmassy elements of this. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and so I sort of, I, I brought up sort of, like, the invocation of... Yeah. The Christmas Carol of the Dickens Christmas Carol, and so I mean it's pretty clearly, you yeah. know, there's a very well a loose, you know, sort of plot yes. line that that follows a similar, um, you know, to that to that story. But um, the thing I like about it, though, which is what you don't expect, I think, is is that self awareness of it that the Doctor specifically by invoking the title that he gives himself the idea consciously i'm going to recreate like this guy is a lot like scrooge and Mm -hmm. i've read my dickens so i know how this goes and so the doctor's kind of self-appointed you know as the ghosts and he's gonna like you know if i can recreate a christmas carol maybe i can save him through and save everybody else through like his change of heart and everything yeah um so, like, I, I think that's the bit that strikes me as really original. That kind of, like, self-awareness. Yeah. Um, and we know the Doctor loves Dickens, right? Because Christopher Eccleston told yeah. him so. So right. we know he's a fan. <laughs> we know he's a fan. Yeah. Um, and, and has met Dickens at this point. And has met so, Dickens and um, enthused to him, so. Yeah. No, I like, um, so I like the other the other part that I liked. And I'm not, I mean... I'm fine with Christmas, but it's like, there are people who are like really into Christmas and that's not me per se, but you know, I do like, um, Christmas stuff, but I like, uh, I like that Kazran has the opening sort of monologue Mm. on, you know, on every world, wherever people are in the deepest part of the winter at exact midpoint, everybody stops and turns and hugs as if to say, well done, well done, everyone. We're halfway out of the dark back on earth. And, and you're getting like, I guess we've seen this a couple times where you get the narration over, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and there's always sort of a nefarious turn <laughs> and you get yeah. that nefarious turn with, this. you know, he sounds so warm and grandfatherly <laughs> at first. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, back on Earth, we called it Christmas or the winter solstice. On this world, the first settlers called it the Crystal Feast. And then he's like, yeah, I don't give two craps about, <laughs> you yeah. know, what your 
what you want to do. Like, yeah, everyone, everyone has their excuse and you're not going to use this one. Yeah. To get, Doesn't he say you know, like, I call it expecting something for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. And he even quotes, um, there might be others, but I know there's at least one direct Dickens quote in there about the surplus population. Um, that yeah, always jumps out be. to me. Um, so even has kind of scroogey lines. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I like about it, too, is one thing I do like about certain Christmas stories, um, which I think this, uh, which Dickens' Christmas Carol and this episode definitely tap into, is like sometimes when you hit the notes right, Christmas stories can be a little bit spooky, you know, like yeah. with the right mix of elements, like rather than the kind of feel-good Hallmark Christmas, um, yeah. I, the best Christmas stories are a little bit... Um, you know, there's like an eeriness to it. You know, there's, there is that, I like that kind of the midpoint of winter when, you know, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but you're halfway through the tunnel, you know, and there's something kind of sometimes a little bit kind of unsettling about it or, you know, that it, it it's about kind of coming together against the cold and the dark, but yeah. the presence of the cold and the dark is what makes you want to come together and everything. Sure. So I think I like that element of, this episode that it feels it gets into that side of the Christmas season. Sure. sure. Um, yeah. And so obviously the parallels with him being a money lender and, yeah. you know, uh, not being too kind to those who uh, don't pay on time or, yeah. or, you know, using family members as collateral, which <laughs> just seems, I mean, well, I was going to say it seems so wrong. That is so wrong. Yeah. Like there's no, like, it Literally, seems about yeah. it, but like, yeah. um, you, yeah, you always wonder like, how do these societies and these sort of dystopian futures like get to that place? Of, right. You know, um, that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how that could ever be considered a justifiable system uh, right. system yeah or whatever um and yeah the fact so on top of that you know the fact that he owns uh the sky basically right. um he has like a monopoly on the fog <laughs> yeah and and right and so you know like the president is calling him to plead right. uh the case of you know these uh this ship coming in and that kind of thing um and we have a crashing spaceship, which is kind of a Christmas tradition with Doctor Who. Most most Christmas episodes have a spaceship crashing. Yeah, well, it's what a kind of thing. landing. So yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. His his he doesn't have too much uh, sympathy for the fellow man. No. Uh, so you know all of sort of the elements of a would-be uh, redemption story, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the beginning. Um, which, you know, again, I mean, it's it's not like... I, I guess this would be a good sort of episode to point out to say, look, you know where it's going to go. Sure. Right? Like, this is not an episode where it's like, you're going to be surprised by the larger plot. Yeah, uh, you know what's yeah. Gonna this happen. is a this is a great example of Lewis's surprisingness. Yeah, than exactly. The surprise, yeah. And yeah, and the idea that it's it's more in the details and the characters. How do you and get do from A to B? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, and anyway. some of it is like 
that kind of, again, the kind of fairy tale logic of, like often with Doctor Who or like with Buffy with with the gentlemen, like does it, sometimes it's important to know the whys and the wherefores, but sometimes it works to just have the scenario and, and the explanations are secondary. So like, okay, yeah. Yeah, like it would be interesting to see like, an explanation of how the society deteriorated to this point or how these this one family rose to such power but at the same or time how fish are swimming in or the how air. fish are swimming you know via electricity or whatever which has something to do with fog um but then there's also just the sense of well isn't it really just like the fairy tale scenario of you know the the, the sleeping princess who's in the box who needs to be sort of woken and it's like doesn't matter why she's there really like it, like the the and i don't say it doesn't matter at all but you know that scenario and that image are more intriguing than any explanation you could really right. write for it right, really right. you know for this for this particular episode i think it kind of works to have this really and it's such a strange world that i think he gets away with it like you know once you have sharks flying around all other considerations become less, I think. Yeah. <laughs> no, for me, I think just the which, outrageousness of the world sort of makes you sort of buy it. I don't know. Yeah. Which is so like, this is veering maybe way off topic, but that's sort of a running theory I have about um, books and stories in general that have sequels uh-huh. is that they tend to lose like a lot of, you know, a lot of first books in a series, you don't know a lot of what's going on. Yeah. But then as the series goes throughout, it's like the author just can't leave it alone and feels the need to go back and explain or things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Over explain and fill in gaps and that kind of thing. And it, it tends to be more detrimental than, yeah. uh, than not. Anyway, it, le- it lessens the impact of, of the mystery that you had in that first. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I think this world is evocative in its own strange way. So, you know, maybe yeah. knowing how it works might lose some of that kind right. of mystique. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, if you take at face value that fish can, can swim in the air and that it's possible to control the clouds and that, uh, you know, there is this dystopian society that Mm. sees it as being normal to hand over a relative so that you can get a loan um among other things you know i'm sure there are plenty of other things we could pick out you know that just seems like if if you can take that at face value then then yeah good let's go but yeah no there's there's i do i mean i do tend more towards science fiction so i guess there are parts of me that do like some of that sort of explanation, but on the yeah. other hand, and we've even talked about, I think my problem is more when people try to give an explanation and it just doesn't make sense. Then yeah. like, I would just rather they didn't give an explanation. Like if we got a whole physiology of the fish here and it just didn't smell right to me, that would be worse than just saying, look, there's swimming fish in the right. air. Well, you know? that's, like, that's that fantastic scene with them when, when, um, when Abigail starts singing for the first time and it calms the shark 
and the doctor's trying yeah, to yeah, explain yeah. it. And yep. and Krasarin's like it's like the doctor's like, No, 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 it has to do with, with the harmonies and it resonates and all this th- and Kazarin's saying, You know what, the fish like it, shut up and listen. And meanwhile, I love the little fish that keeps biting him in the back of his neck, like every time he tries to explain yeah. it, he goes, Ow fish bit me it's and, like in the theater the someone is, whapping you on the, the head with the, the program fish is saying shut up like we're yeah. listening <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Um, I love that. so yeah like and that is kind of i think moffat winking at the bit of the audience that would want an explanation and that's him kind of saying i can give you one if you want is it really going to make the story this particular story better i mean i think there are stories where those kinds of explanations are more appropriate um, there might even be episodes of Doctor Who where that kind of explanation is more appropriate, but um, sure. But in this case, yeah. it's like a nope. The fish like it. Shut up and enjoy it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and there is a fine line, certainly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, yeah. You can argue about particulars of to say, well, it would have been nice if there was a little more, or a little mm-hmm. less, or whatever. But uh, I do like that in this one. You do just sort of have to take a number of things for granted and. Yeah. And that's fine and and you move on with it. Um the so you know, I don't I don't know how much we like we talked about okay, we talked about the Christmas Eve stuff, we talked about Kazran a bit. Mm-hmm. Um I don't I don't know how much more to, there is to say about Kazran and and maybe to include Abigail mm-hmm. in that. Um I mean Again, Abigail's backstory is her family gave her up <laughs> to be collateral. But on the other hand, this also seems like a sort of sort of self sacrifice move for her, right? It's a, it's a yeah. I can help my family out, and I only have a few days to live anyway. I might as well do yeah. this kind of yeah. thing. Um, well, there's and there's that kind of like you mentioned, like it was sort of random that they chose Abigail, but there's also that kind of. Um, serendipity or maybe you catastrophe element to it too that lucky they did because she's the one with the voice that can sure. calm the the calm the skies sure. you know that she has what it takes you know to do what they need to rescue the people yeah um no that is true i was thinking a, a different way though too about you get the you get the moment at the end where uh, old Kazran finally mm-hmm. lets Abigail out again. Yeah. And, you know, she talks about him sort of hoarding her, like, you know, a miser, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, you know, saying how it's been too long. But that actually, it wasn't until the second time that I saw that, that I sort of contrasted that with the family at the beginning, who, you know, how many years has it been that she's been trapped? Yeah. And, I mean, they presumably know that she only has a few days to live. So are they in that same way right. coming back? Or is it that they've been coming every year and asking and he just refuses them every year? I, I don't know. Right. Like, there's no answer to that. But right. I, I was wondering, like, is there is there a possible parallel between those two of, you know, the family also kind of treating her, kind, you know, sort of, not, I, I don't want to say greedily because I'm sure they needed the money you know, for whatever. But also there is the fact that you gave up a member of your family, even if she only had a few days to live instead of, you know, uh, 
trying to use those days to the best that you could and whatever, like you, you sold her basically. (laughs) So, uh, like as much as I don't want to paint Kazran in a good light or his Mm -hmm. father in a good light per se for doing that. But like, I think it's very easy to blame only him and not whatever. And you can, you can blame the systematic stuff or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay so the system is what it is that's not what's changing yeah but the people themselves can change and like is there real would there really have been no other way to survive that didn't involve selling your family well and it, it makes you wonder too if what part of you like yes they you know gave her in, in exchange for the money but also it makes you wonder if part of the reason that she was given or was volunteered or maybe she volunteered was that she only had a, and that this is the only way to live was to get kind of put in stasis and frozen. So there's that kind of not, not just the greed of wanting the money, but the kind of maybe uh, a little bit of that arrogance of trying to make her, you know, immortal or help her escape death or, um, you know, escape the effects of her disease and everything. Um, sure. And this so is like, that might've been part of why it's her, you know, as well, you know, she's yeah. going to die. We don't want that to happen this way. You know, she gets to live. If you can kind of call that living really like frozen right. in the ice. And well, and... it's like the whole, the cryo, you know, right. Cryogenesis stuff. Like maybe someday in the future, they'll have a cure. Right. So, so this is like killing a couple birds <clears throat> with a stone kind of yeah. thing. And yeah. And I don't mean to imply that like the family is completely selfish for doing this or whatever. Like, it, well, and I, I think, I mean, the point I don't think that's that a totally noble thing anyway. Like, you know, well, so I don't, I think that. Yeah. I guess my, my point is to say like, you know, we talked about ambiguity sort of with the doctor and, um, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Like there are ambiguous motives, I think all in, around yeah. in, in a number of cases, like probably the least ambiguous motive is you know from amy and rory who are like we don't want our spaceship to crash like you know what i mean like uh so yeah everybody else has kind of multiple agendas that they're yeah sort of working towards yeah so there's definitely and and again i mean you can sort of side with one or the other and that's fine you know i don't i mean i think the tendency is to sort of see the family as more sympathetic than that yeah. Um, so I don't want to necessarily paint them into harsh of a light either, but, yeah. but I do think that it's worth sort of considering some of those questions of, you know, what would lead to this? And, and, and maybe it does come down to, well, Kazran is an oppressive, basically mm-hmm. ruler over this, but, you know, on the other hand, I can't believe, like, there is a president, presumably there's an army somewhere who could stop him. You right. know what I mean? Like, right, right. This it it doesn't it, no there's you, I, the, there's the some I, social the complicity I definitely have is that that he basically has everyone in the palm of his hand because of his control over this cloud layer yeah. that he is this tyrant who you know because he has this secret to making this world habitable um he gets away with a heck of a lot you know. Um, why the army couldn't come in and seize that technology, I guess, is another question. You know, maybe they need more information or, than that. But 
or, or an uprising of the people, you know, right, I mean? like right. there seems like, anyway, right. like, I mean, we can go on and speculate. We don't get all those. Um, thankfully the doctor manages it in a better way than we're suggesting, yeah, um, yeah. you know, through warfare and whatnot. But, uh, <laughs> so, you know, that's good. Um, well, that's like, again, back to that ambiguity because we're, we're questioning the doctor's, uh, ethics and motives with rewriting someone's history but also, you know, he's trying to change things for the better, positively, nonviolently, and in a way that improves everyone's situation. So his motives, as much as we're suspecting his motives, there's also that sense of, you know, are, should we really be questioning that goal? Because th those are all good things, you know? Um, you know, yeah, and he and even says, like, he was trying to make you nicer, and he was trying to do it nicely, um, rather right. than just come in and overthrow Kazran and figure, you know, force him to do whatever. Um, you know, the yeah. doctor does try to, you know, in his own strange way, try to work with people and, you know, but again, it's ambiguous and I don't know that there's a clear right or wrong there. Um, yeah, no, I definitely think there's a sense of the doctor walking a knife's edge, uh, you know, to try to do all of these things in a, you, you know, well, I guess not in a ends justify the means sort of way. Like, you know, the means are also important to him. Yeah. So, uh, no, that makes, that makes sense. I think, um, I wanted um, to talk a little bit too about the story aspect, like the, 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 uh, you know, him and Kazran are having, their con the young Kazran are having that conversation about, you know, uh, how he missed the day when everyone got attacked by the school of fish or whatever. So Kazran says, everyone's got a story. And the doctor, you know, says, but you don't. And um, again, it goes back to that. Uh, or at least Kazran sort of sees it going back to, you know, everyone else was on this trip and I wasn't kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, there is so there's a couple things there I think one is you know the idea that he is sort of like the special position right his father's the great man who's building this you know thing and like everyone in town like even um, when you get like young adult Kazran and he's spending Christmas Eve with Abigail's family and they're yeah. all like they all know who he is oh isn't that Kazran right. right right you know right. it's you know it's he's like the prince you know everyone knows who yeah. the prince is and yeah and because everyone knows him and because of the importance or the power at least that his father has, he is held to a different standard as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and so there's also that sense of he's not part of his own story, mm -hmm. right? It's that, it's that he's part of his father's story. Mm -hmm. He's, yeah. he's, he doesn't have a story or, you know, opportunities that might have arisen where he could be part of a story or could have his own story. He gets excluded for some reason. And, yeah. um, you know, that may or may not have to do with his, uh, particular aspect or whatever. But, but I think, I think there is that idea. Like you, you, you get this sense that just even in, you know, like life, like there's the psychological notion of, people have to sort of create their own narrative, right? Like healthy adjusted people do sort of create their own narrative about who they are and 
where they're going and what they want to accomplish. And maybe it's not always realistic. You know, I mean, you can sort of tell who has the unrealistic narrative Mm -hmm. of themselves at times. Um, And sometimes maybe you can't, you know, and that's fine. Like, but there is that, there is that idea. I, I, I like that concept of everyone's got a story because it does show that like, you do sort of need, you know, what, what is Kazran doing? Like even, even, when we first see him, old man Kazran isn't what is, what is he really doing? He's controlling the sky based on this machine. His father built, he's not, he's never actually done anything. He's just perpetuated this whole system that his father had. Like at that point, he still never had, you know, 60, 70, whatever, however many years later, yeah, he still hasn't created his own story. And so in a way that's what the doctor does. Yeah. is that he comes in and gives him a story. He gives him, like, you know, like you mentioned earlier, like, you know, he, it might have been the intention for him to just come in, give him a fun shark story, but mm-hmm. it becomes even more than that, right? It becomes yeah. Christmas after Christmas going yeah. to all these events and doing all of these fun things and all of yeah. these different times and places and that kind of thing. So, um, I don't know. I just, I like that aspect of, of like that there needs to be and yeah the you know we talked about how he still becomes sort of a sour old man but it's it's those memories it's that story that the doctor helps him achieve or or get that actually make him want to not be as bad of a guy as he is at the beginning yeah Um, so that reminds me of uh the the quote from the big bang of we're all stories in the end just make it a good one you know like yeah you are the yeah. story that you choose to tell of your own life you know and that yeah you are that story and that's what defines you in the end yeah. and, um so no matter what it is make it a good story and you know, i think be, be proud of it i think we can go back even further with donna you know it's donna who always mm-hmm. missed everything and yeah. finally gets uh, you know, to have all of these adventures. And of course the sadness is that now she doesn't remember them. And so, yeah. you know, she goes back to being same old Donna who misses everything. Um, and that's, but, there's, but, but I also always come back to with Donna. She, she might not remember her story, but other people do that. There are people sure, out there sure. singing songs of Donna Noble, you yeah. know? So, and I that, don't mean to imply that it's, it's not worth it. I'm just saying like, that's why yeah, yeah. we're sad that's the is tragic. because she yeah, doesn't, yeah she doesn't remember it but no i think you're right like there's it but it's that it's that having your own story is is important and i and there's probably other examples we could pull out but those are um no i think you're right like yeah the the you you know make it make it a good one is maybe that's you know if we can kind of draw the series together that seems to be to me like the common what unites all the companions in the end really is their experience with the doctor and getting that story of their own like i i think of rose talking about how you know how much better life with the doctor was not because she you know was uh, that there was anything wrong per se with her old life but that you know she had learned a new way to appreciate a way to live your life you know living your life to a a greater extent or you think of like martha walking the earth as the great storyteller you know who 
tells everyone, you know, the stories that of what she's experienced yep. with the doctor and everything. Um, yep. You know, so that seems to be like a common theme of, you know, people come out of their experiences or, or, you know, and I just thought of River in the library, you know, who's the doctor? He's the only story you'll ever tell if you survive him. Right. So, right. you know, all of them kind of come out with a story worth telling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No. And, and, and I like that. Um, like even, even talking about, you know, the doctor and choosing the sort of nonviolent in whatever ways you just reminded me, you know, with Martha that it is, you know, she's the resistance, but what's the resistance? It's the story. It's not, yeah. it's yeah. not the warfare. It's not the military. It's not about it's, the weapon. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. not about fighting. It's about sharing and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So let's see. Um, what and anything else about Kazran? I guess sort of himself. We we've sort of gone back and forth <laughs> in, yeah. in a number of different. But we didn't quite go through his um, life his like one to one. Well, I did want to mention just two quick like actor notes um, about Kazran and Abigail um, mm-hmm. because I think they're kind of notable. So Kazran, old Kazran. Uh, is played by Michael Gammon, who's well known as Dumbledore Mark II in the <laughs> Harry Potter movies. And uh, okay. I am not a fan of his Dumbledore. Um, I much prefer him in this because he is quite a uh, crotchety older gentleman. And I don't think that works for Dumbledore, but I think it works in this case, you know. Uh, sure. And not to say that he doesn't do a good job with, I think he does a good job showing the change in Kazran and that and him coming around and being, I don't mean to say he's only one note, but I know from, from my own experience of watching him and interviews that I've seen that he's not always the biggest with, he, he tends to want to play characters more like himself which is kind of strange for an actor. It kind of bugs me. But in this case, I think it works. <laughs> it, like he said in, about Dumbledore, like I pretty much just play myself and I want to take the book and smack him over the head with it because that's not the way you should approach it as an actor. But um, you know what? If himself is like this, then he does a good job. You know, I think he sells the kind of all the various stages that Kazran goes through. Um mm-hmm. And I, I like his performance, but he's a well-known actor. So a pretty yeah. good, pretty sizable guest star for them to get. Um, and I also wanted to mention Abigail because uh, she is played not by an actor, but by a professional opera singer um, whose name is I was, Catherine I was Jenkins. wondering, I was wondering about that with the, with yeah. the singing, if that was actually her or not. It is. Yes. So she was cast for her. Like, she'd never acted before. Um, and, you know, cast for her singing ability. Um, and, you know, n- not going to win any awards necessarily, but I think for a first-time actor, does a very good job. Um, and, you know... Yeah, I mean, she's obviously very attractive and sings well. I, I think that's, that's sort of... That's pretty much what she's asked to what do, she and was she doing, accomplishes you know, it. Yeah. What, whether that's what you would hope for in being... But, I mean... Yeah, it I sounds mean, like she's not necessarily has acting aspirations anyway, so that's you know no, fine. No, I mean no. Ky- Kylie Minogue was another singer who has been did in a, a Christmas, did a Christmas special. special. So. Although they didn't have her sing, um, but 
Which uh, is okay. Which is, that's they, fine with me. They didn't have her act much either, so. <laughs> Sorry. That's terrible. Oh, I, a slam on I, I, but I'm incorrigible. Um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, could you have gotten a more moving performance from this part if they had chosen a professional actor? Probably. Um, but I think for what they needed, they needed someone with a voice to sell that ending of having a voice powerful enough to sort of yeah. calm the sky. And I think she pulls that and, off. And, and it's nice. And, and it's better than lip syncing. It's always better to have a real, a oh, real sure. singer. Oh, you know? sure. Uh, would she, like, is she well-known? Like, I mean, as an opera singer, I think in, like... I think in Britain she is. She's okay. Welsh. Um, so I didn't know her before this, but I think she's well enough known that they, like, kind of knew her as a, like, she was a bit of a guest star. Like, people wouldn't know her. Um, mm-hmm. She wasn't unknown, we'll say that, so. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, cool. Cool. Yeah, I you know I did not place Michael Gambon there, but um, I knew I had seen the actor before and, and just yeah. didn't know where. So yeah, thank you for sharing that because that's helpful. Yeah. Um. So the last few minutes, I guess maybe we can talk about Amy and Rory. Sure. Um. So there, this is sort of their official honeymoon now. Yeah. Um. <laughs> love the cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> what were you doing? You're in the honeymoon suite, you know. Just yeah. imagine. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, the yeah. the policewoman and, and, and the, the centurion. Yeah. Uh, no, that's that's a little I mean, bit TMI about Rory and Amy. <laughs> yeah, that's. But you know, I mean, how many times have we now seen each of them in sort of their respective costumes? So it's right, not like, like you associate them with those costumes. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, we don't get like this. Obviously, the story is mostly about the doctor and Kazran and then Abigail, you know, when she comes into it, um, you know, their pieces are more sort of, uh, you know, just helping with that. Um, I do like that, that, you know, you get the hologram as the ghost of Christmas present yeah, and, you yeah. know coming in and showing um, all the people in the cryo chamber, which I thought was, was interesting because you get, you know, there's like all the cryo chambers, which are full of people. And then you mm-hmm. get like all of these ghostly, yeah. you know, which also have sort of a frozen look to them. Yeah. You know, apparition. Right. Uh, and it, and it, there's that moment where you wonder, is it the people in the cryo chambers that are yeah. actually doing the singing and everything? Yeah. Right. Right. You're not entirely sure. Um, um, and also just that it's the singing at the end, right? Isn't that, um, maybe this is just from film adaptations that I remember and not this story itself, but from Dickens' Christmas Carol, isn't it the, oh, I hear, you know, the singing on Christmas Day, like when it, yeah. when everything's kind of over and it's, yeah. you know, he hears the carols being sung and um, that kind of thing. So, you know, it does, and, and again, the timing's not exactly right because at that point he's, it's like not till he's brought onto the ship as, you know, then he's the ghost. Right. right, um, right. But I, I do like that switch over too, like to, you know, like suddenly he's in their shoes and, and mm-hmm. seeing what's going on and um, all of yeah, that. Yeah. And so. finding a way for, uh, to make 
carol singing important to the story you know so you have christmas carol in the title and christmas carols are so such a big part of christmas you know but making that kind of singing for their lives that their lives depend on the singing of these carols and everything um the other thing that that it evoked in me is the whole uh and the band played on mentality of the titanic Mm. you know with with the the you know singing as you're going down with the ship and that kind of thing um that yeah, like there's still. I mean, it's not joyful per se, but it's it's a. Uh, it's resolute. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. You're you're. It is well with my soul, kind of thing. You know, right, like right, like right. whatever happens, this in this moment, we're we're okay with, you know, what's going on. Um, yeah, and that nobody tells them that it's not working, so that. If it comforts them, don't take that away. Let them keep right. singing, you know? Right, right, Um, But I, what, what I really wanted to get to sort of in the last minute um, real quick is uh, as they're going on uh, into the TARDIS, I think, or, yeah, I think it's when they're going to the TARDIS. Um, is it Amy who says uh, it'll be their last day together, referring to Kazran and Abigail? Yeah. And the doctor says, everything's got to end sometime. Otherwise, nothing would ever get started. And so yeah. there's, whenever the doctor, I mean, this throws you right back to him and Rose, right? Sure. Everything everything ends. Like, yeah. never say never, ever. Never say never, ever. Uh, so <sighs> is that portentous? Like, I want to know. Like, I don't well, want you to, I don't want you to tell me, obviously. But, like, I read that because it's, like, one of the last moments of the episode it's like that feels like it could be portentous and maybe maybe it's just normal doctor who sort of suggestiveness or maybe it's specific i don't know i just wanted to note that i guess yeah no i think i think yes and yes you know yes to everything because you know like is it specifically portentous to this situation in amy and rory or whatever you know, obviously we'll see, you know, but, um, there's just that, that sense of, well, that's always going to be true, you know, whether it's, yeah, whether yeah. it's, you know, like, I know, for but us, that's a unsatisfying answer. Well, but, but that's the only <laughs> answer there is. Cause it doesn't matter if Amy and Rory, uh, you know, say, uh, this isn't going to happen, but say next episode was their last episode or whatever, you know, or whether the end of the season is their last, or maybe they're in it for another two seasons. And then there's always going to be an ending somewhere, you know? So there's just that sense of the wheel comes around again and you got to change it up, whether it's a new companion or a new doctor, there's always change on the way. And that's, and that can be a, very sad thing like you know i think you know like we've always had the kind of everything has its time everything dies and that's the way it is and that's the way the world works and there's something kind of true but sad about that but i think Mm -hmm. this is a more positive spin on that of everything has to end otherwise nothing would ever get started that as soon as like yes everything has to end and that's sad but that means that something new get started you know so the loss of a doctor means you know we get a new one or or companions leaving means that you know there are new companions and everything so there's that kind of i don't know 
it's inevitable, but it's also the the death is how the rebirth comes. I think. Sure. Um, sure. No, and not I know. not to say I... that anyone's gonna die, but like you know what I mean. <laughs> I'd say like it absolutely is portentous in the long run. You know, does that tell you yeah. when or if anything is gonna happen? Not necessarily, but of course that refers to uh, to all these characters. I think. You know that's not what I'm asking, but okay. Um, anyway, we're at time. You want to know if this is Amy you. and Rory's last season, you know? <laughs> no, I I mean, and it, so it's tough because I do know there's at least one more companion between them and when the new Doctor comes. But again, like as with past companions, I don't know when or how yeah. or any of that. And I've I've tried desperately although it's harder considering that there are it's actual right like now, yeah. new season you know new episodes of doctor who happening yeah. as we record these episodes like it's hard to not see little things here and there but yeah. um but i i don't know exactly when i just yeah i do have guesses though and that maybe <laughs> that's what's more pretentious is my you know it's not so much the line as the line coupled with my own guesses and limited knowledge well here's another here's another spin on it too um i think that line too um and especially amy's bit about it'll be their last day together and then couple that with kazran talking to the doctor about if you you know uh if you could choose one last day with your beloved you know what day would you choose is there a riverish aspect to those lines too of kind of they've you know he he in a way he sort of had their last day together um you know but i think there's like an aspect of those that could kind of refer to that relationship as well um yeah, well yes so you right if you consider um silence in the library and that story as their last day but there's also the reference that but it's also kind of his first day so. it's it's his first day but there's also the reference that she says Oh, then you must have known last time you came and saw me because we did all these wonderful things together. Yeah. So that yeah, could like be. Yeah, like what day did, would you choose? You yeah. know, and he's thinking, hmm. Yeah, you know? right, right. So anyway, um, all that said, all speculation, here we go. I guess we're done. Oh, two, oh, two more did you things. Have, that, did you I have, have more? two more things that I can't help but uh, bring up. One, just because it makes me happy, is the whole uh, uh, episode with Marilyn. Um, and oh. <laughs> Marilyn, get your coat. <laughs> he goes off and yeah. maybe gets married to her. We're not quite sure. We're not entirely um, sure. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't a real chapel is what he says. And um, and uh, There the was other... a ceremony of some sort. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah, and he kind of goes just because they ignore him, and he kind of doesn't have any other choice. Like, oh, fine, I'll just go get married, will I? Um, and uh, <laughs> the other um, is bringing it back to Abigail just for a second. That the the song that she sings at the end, which is obviously like an original song, it's not a real Christmas carol or anything. But um, you know, because it's original, they can kind of do what they want with the lyrics, and all of the lyrics have to do uh with music obviously but with contrasting that to silence you know that she keeps saying you know 
Sure. Silence is all around. Silence is all you are. Silence is all you know. All those like lines about that. Um, yeah. And given that we've heard about silence a few times, I think that's worth bringing. Yeah. Up. Yeah. The silence and all that. And also makes it a good episode to pair with Hush. It does. So. It gives you good fodder for episode titles. Yeah. Uh, and once again, the, the, the ready crossover uh, you know, for those things. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, very cool. All right. Well, with that said, we start afresh with a new season. Yeah. Next time. Um, yep. And we start, I won't give out any hints, but we start afresh with a new character in Angel next time. So okay. we we will have lots of new things in 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 the, you know, uh, in the way of you know all things end, but yeah. only so that new things can begin. Right. That's that's what we can look forward to. Yep. Yep. Anyway. All right. Very we'll exciting. We'll be back next week. See you then. Mm-hmm.